0: I discovered this week that I can actually take this off. And now it's not in my way. It only took me like five and a half months. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you in your great love have given yourself for us, that we are wholly bound to you. And so we have great hope. Lord, as we read your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to understand and to behold wondrous things from your word that we might again be encouraged and built up in this great hope we have in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2. Again, we're in verses 15 to 21. Uh, This again is the sort of the thesis statement of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It succinctly packages the main thrust of Paul's whole argument in the, in the letter. And you may recall a, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I said these verses were making two big claims. Uh, and Paul's going to then spend the rest of his letter unpacking these, these claims. So, the first in verses 15, 16, and 21 that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's the great plumb line of of Paul's gospel, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Men and women can, can never be right with God on the basis of their works, but only ever on the basis of what Christ has done in their place. Christ alone, who's offered freely and fully in the gospel and received by faith alone. Right? That's what it means to be justified by faith, to be right with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. And if I'm not careful, I'll just preach that message again because it's so important. And I love it so much. I had a few people mention to me afterwards, said, it seemed like you were preaching on something that you're, you're really passionate about. I said, yes, this is like number one, justification by faith alone. This morning, we're looking then at verses 17 to 20, which is the other part of Paul's thesis. Here he introduces this objection that's leveled against what he teaches about justification and its practical effects on our lives. And the objection runs something like this. If people come into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ and not through their works, if people are fully and finally and forever justified before God without having to obey God's law beforehand or having to keep God's favor by obeying his law afterward, doesn't that just give us permission to sin? More than that, doesn't it even encourage us to sin? Uh, Paul's opponents surely thought this, which is why Paul strategically brings this up himself in in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. But if seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Right? He just finished saying that a person's not justified by works, but but through faith in Christ. And then he continues on the heels of that statement, saying, Now I know what you're probably thinking. Whoa, whoa, Paul, hang on. If we're justified by faith in Christ and, and not by works, and you say it's not necessary to live according to the law anymore because it will never make us righteous, and we can just go ahead and live like the Gentiles do, well, doesn't it mean that this Messiah that you preach actually promotes, encourages, and is an accessory to sin? How could we believe that? The Messiah is supposed to promote holiness, not sin. But if this Messiah of yours forgives sin freely through faith, without requiring obedience to God's commands, well then tell me, Paul, why would we do good works at all? What reason, what what motive do we have to live for God? It's the the basic tenor of this objection, and it's quite a similar objection to the one that Paul answers in Romans 6.1, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Or again, Romans 6.15, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? It's the same question we read a few weeks ago from the the Heidelberg Catechism. Doesn't this teaching of justification by faith alone make people indifferent and wicked? And and that really gets down to the gist of what the objection is, is about. Paul's opponents thought that the only way that you could live for God was to follow the law and to follow the law in the hopes of avoiding judgment and earning God's favor. But Paul's preaching about justification by faith has completely short-circuited that system. So those who are justified by Christ don't need to try to avoid judgment. Their judgment and condemnation has been paid for in Jesus' death. And they don't try to earn their standing of righteousness before God because because in Christ, they've been given Christ's standing of righteousness freely. Now to his opponents, Paul's gospel, Paul's teaching about this, seems to give people no reason to pursue holiness, no reason to live for God. And on the contrary, they assume that this teaching actually actively promotes sin, since, so to speak, it lets people off the hook without the threat of punishment. Justification by works, rather, would seem to promote holiness. And God would surely be for whatever promotes holiness, right? So perhaps you've heard this objection to the gospel before. Uh, Perhaps you've had this objection to the gospel before. Perhaps you you have it now, this morning. So I'd love to believe that, but it seems like if if I believe that, it gives me no reason to live for God. Why would I, why would I want to do that? Just would encourage wickedness. And this objection certainly is not limited to Paul's day. Uh, in every generation, this gospel truth of justification by faith alone, this thing that's at the very heart, the very core of the gospel, uh, has, has been accused of this very thing. And, and Tragically, many professing Christians lend credence to this objection by their own behavior. As they think, well, I've been forgiven, now I can do whatever I want. This is one of the main criticisms leveled at Protestants by by the Roman Catholic Church. To to teach such a doctrine, they said, would only lead to more ungodliness. In fact, the the Roman uh, critics of the Reformation said that the only reason the Reformers taught justification by faith was because they wanted an excuse to continue to indulge in, in their own sin, a lazy and licentious lifestyle. Justification by faith is just merely a convenient theological excuse for their wickedness. That was the accusation. Two hundred years later, as the, the Great Awakening spread across Britain and America, the evangelicals who were preaching again justification by faith as this cardinal doctrine of the gospel, they were opposed by, by many people, one of whom was the aptly named William Law, a legalistic minister who thought that the teaching of people like John Wesley or George Whitfield would Lead to increased wickedness among the people. In fact, he he wrote a book arguing for justification by faith plus works. This man was a minister in the Church of England. Side note, William Law's books are sometimes regarded as Christian classics. You might see them appear in the Library of Christian classics or some series of spiritual uh, classics. Take my advice, don't believe the hype and don't waste your time. They are devoid of the gospel. The same objection to justification is made today. A few years ago, I was pastoring a church in Philadelphia. Uh, One of our elders and I met with a man who'd begun to attend our church. He said he enjoyed the preaching, which, of course, I always have a question, what does it mean to enjoy the preaching? Um, But he'd, he'd sent a number of strongly worded emails to our pastors chiding us for teaching justification by faith alone. And his objection was, was exactly this. In his mind, if being right with God and staying right with God comes only through faith in Christ, then there's no place or motive for good works. And because as he read Scripture, he saw, well, God clearly wants us to do good works, he concluded justification could never be by faith alone. Sadly, this conversation was relatively unpleasant, uh, and it ended with him ultimately leaving the church because we wouldn't change what we taught. So, this objection that Paul preemptively suggests here in verse 17 is is quite common. If righteousness comes through faith in Christ, doesn't it mean we'll just go on sinning and therefore Christ actually promotes our sin, not our holiness? That's the objection. Of course, in making this objection, Paul is intending to contradict it. Say, so you might be thinking this. Now let me answer it for you. Doesn't this mean, Paul, that Christ promotes sin? And Paul answers, absolutely not. Clear enough? The way that Paul actually answers here, it's the strongest possible means of negating something in Greek. Greek. It's the most forceful no in Paul's vocabulary. Uh, This suggestion is utterly unthinkable. But why? And Paul will then give a a, a compact, tightly wound explanation, which, in answering this question, introduces themes and and ideas that are going to continue to be run down for the rest of the letter. So contrary to what his opponents claimed, seeking to be justified by the law will never lead you to truly live for God. The only way to truly live for God is to die to the law and to be united to Christ by faith. So That's our two points for this morning, if you are an outline person. Seeking to be justified by the law will never lead you to truly live for God. The only way to truly live for God is is to die to the law and to be united to Christ by faith. So we'll look at verse 18 first. Seeking to be justified by the law will never lead you to truly live for God. Good verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker what he says here might first seem a little bit out of, out of place, uh, but it's closely connected with verse 17. In Greek, actually, it begins with the word for. If you have the NIV, that's probably, you don't see that uh, there, but it actually begins with the word for, connecting it to verse 17. It means that what he says here in verse 18 is explaining what he has answered in verse 17. Does justification by faith make Christ a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. Why? For if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. But how exactly does that explain Paul's answer? I think it's something like this. The assumption and accusation made by Paul's opponents was that his teaching of justification by faith, actually encouraged sin. And that implies that for them, that justification by works of the law would truly promote holiness. And therefore, it was necessary that we should go back to the works of the law to complete our justification or to secure our justification. Therefore, this is what they end up teaching to the Galatians. This is what they end up teaching in Antioch when Paul and Peter have this, this fight. Now Paul says, of course, that this is decidedly false. Uh, what Paul destroyed, said, for if I rebuild what I destroyed, what he destroyed was seeking justification through the law. By turning to Christ and trusting in Him, Paul, destroyed any pretense or any hope that he had of salvation by works. The confidence that he had previously placed in himself to secure righteousness before God had been demolished and replaced with a confidence in Christ and a righteousness that was not his own but came from outside of him. To rebuild this, then, would be to return... To depending on the works of the law for his right standing before God. And what would the the result of such a rebuilding be? Paul's opponents, of course, would argue that ultimately it would lead to true righteousness before God, it would promote true holiness and lead to eternal life. But Paul knows that's not the case at all. What does he say? says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, if I return to seeking to be right with God in part or in whole through the works of the law, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Hang on, Paul. You're saying that if you went back to seeking justification through following the law, then you would be a lawbreaker? Isn't that backwards? Don't you mean then I would be a lawkeeper? keeper? But the idea here, and Paul goes on to explain this in greater detail in chapter 3, is that his opponents had completely misunderstood the purpose of the law. Seeking justification before God through works can never produce holiness because that's not what the law, what God's commands are designed to do. The law can't justify. It only has the power to reveal and condemn sin. Paul says as much in Romans 3, It says, no one will be declared righteous or justified. No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Think of it like an x-ray. An x-ray of a healthy bone shows what it ought to look like. An x-ray of a broken bone shows where the break is. But the x-ray neither uh, creates or restores health in and of itself it merely shows what's there under the skin so the law God's law functions like an x-ray it shows what God's perfect standard is and it exposes the the myriad of ways that we break it and fall short of it but relying on obedience to it to be justified is like relying on an x-ray to heal a broken bone You can keep going back over and over again for more x-rays, but they're not going to help the bone heal properly. They'll just continually show that it's still broken. So Paul's point here is this, that if, if you return to building your hope on works for your right standing with God, not only will you not be justified, not only will you not truly live for God, The law itself will again show you that you are still a lawbreaker because you will still be unable to keep it and you will remain condemned under it. The law won't promote your holiness. It will only reveal and condemn your continued unholiness. It will not lead you to actually keep the law and please God. It will only reveal that you are indeed still a lawbreaker. This is why if you're trying hard to be a good Christian, to follow God's commands, hoping that in the end you will have accrued enough righteousness to merit God's favor, you will never satisfy that gnawing sense of guilt, that crushing weight of sin that you feel. Because you're trying to use God's commands for something they aren't designed to do. In the end, you'll either be proud because of how much more righteous you think you are than everyone else, even though before God you have still fallen short, or you'll live in despair because of how unrighteous the law shows you that you are. Whatever that looks like on the outside, neither qualifies as living for God, seeking to be justified the law will never lead you to truly live for God. The only way to live for God is to die to the law and to be united to Christ by faith. This is what he says in verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to take these statements in three parts. You see, they kind of build on each other. Uh, we need to die to the law in order to live for God verse 19 the only way we can die to the law is to be united to Christ it's the first half of verse 20 and the only way we can be united to Christ is through faith that's the second half of verse 20 so look at verse 19 for through the law i died to the law so that i might live for God. Paul says something very similar in Romans 7. You'll notice the number of times I'm referencing Romans. I promise you, reading Romans is very helpful in understanding Galatians. It says something very similar in Romans 7. The, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So in order to come under the saving reign of the grace of Christ, Paul needed to Die to the law and its mastery over him. We need to die to the law in order to live for God. What he's saying here in verse 19 to his critics is basically this I can't return to the law as you suggest. In fact, I, I died to the law. In the eyes of the law, I'm dead and buried, I'm no longer subject to its requirements. This happened through the law, that is, legally, in a way, consistent with divine justice. And it happened in order that I might finally be able to truly live for God, which I couldn't do while I was under the condemnation and slavery of the law and its demands, all the while dead in my sins. Because the law cannot justify or give life but can only reveal and condemn sin i needed to be freed from the law's condemnation and receive new life in order to be able to truly live for god and notice that he counters this argument being made against him by saying he died to the law and his opponents probably expected him to say that he died to the law so that he can be free from the law to live for himself I died to the law, and now I get to live however I want. That's what they expect him to say, but that's not what he says. He says, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Not freed to sin, but freed to obey. And if he needed to die to the law in order to be able to live for God, it means that it's impossible to live for God any other way. The question then is, how exactly do you die to the law? He answers this in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says that he died to the law because in the the sight of the law, in the sight of God, he and and all those who trust in Jesus are counted as crucified with Christ. Christ. And he has a new life now because Christ, having been raised from the dead, lives in him. Again, something quite similar. He says in Romans 7, You also died to the law through the body of Christ. I think there he's referring to the death of Christ in the body. Through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. In these passages, Paul is referring to this incredible reality that is at the heart of the doctrine of salvation, that we are united to Christ. Union with Christ is probably not something that you think about very often, at least not consciously. I think you could reasonably call this the most important doctrine that you've never heard of. So we tend to think about our salvation more in terms of things like justification or adoption or redemption or reconciliation or forgiveness or eternal life and so on. And and all of these things are, are wonderfully and gloriously true of us if we are saved, but the reality is that all of those things only come to us if we are connected to Christ. John Murray, who was a longtime professor of theology at Westminster in Philadelphia, said it this way, Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I think he's right. You see this all over the New Testament. Once you, once you know where it is, you see it everywhere. Whenever we read those precious little words, In Christ. In Christ. You go back and you read over in Romans 6, that passage we read earlier, and see how many times Christians are described as those who are in Christ or with Christ. Or in Ephesians 1, Paul says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is, every spiritual blessing that we have comes because we are in Christ connected to Christ, united to Christ, who is himself the fount of every blessing. And this idea can be more challenging to grasp because we're so prone to think about salvation in sort of legal terms. We're not condemned, we're justified. Amen. You guys know I love that. Perhaps think about it in familial terms. We're, we're no longer orphans. We're, we're adopted as children of God. These are wonderfully, absolutely true and, and precious but union with Christ is even more basic to our salvation than this. It means that we're not just connected to Christ in sort of a bare legal sense or a a familial sense. More basically, we're we're connected to Christ vitally, and so we we share in all that is in him. Like, say, a branch shares in the life of the vine. It's no mistake that Jesus himself used this imagery. Apart from connection to the vine, a branch will wither and die. It's lifeless on its own. But connected to the vine, the source of life, the branch will grow and bear fruit. And so to be united to Christ is to be like a branch that's, that's grafted into the vine, connected to it, the, the branch sharing all that the vine is and has, the life and vitality of the vine flowing into it, pulsating through it, causing it to flourish and produce fruit. And so in a very real sense, to be saved simply means to be united to Christ. Every blessing of salvation, justification included, comes to us only and ever because we are in Christ and He lives in us. And the question then is, how do we come to be united to Christ? And so share in all these unsearchable riches that are in Him. Verse 20 The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way that we can be united to Christ is through faith. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is, I live because I'm united to the Son of God by faith and so I continually receive from him From his fullness, grace upon grace, I continue to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul here connects what he's saying about union with Christ to this objection that's made against his teaching. His gospel does not promote sin because while faith and only faith justifies, Faith doesn't only justify. You follow? Only faith justifies, but faith doesn't only justify. The faith that saves us doesn't save because it connects us to some abstract idea about salvation. Faith saves because it connects us to Christ who saves us. Faith doesn't connect us to redemption. It connects us to Christ, the Redeemer. Faith doesn't connect us to justification. Faith connects us to Christ in whom we are counted righteous, justified. Faith doesn't connect us to adoption. It connects us to Christ in whom we are adopted. Faith doesn't connect us to regeneration. It connects us to Christ who makes us alive and dwells in us by his spirit. So the objection that justification by faith alone actually leads to encourages people to sin, holds no weight because the faith that justifies doesn't only justify us, it unites us to Christ, and that necessarily brings all the benefits of salvation with it. The closest thing I can think to compare this to is marriage. Uh, The declaration that Michelle and I were husband and wife immediately changed our status, It was the beginning point of our life together, But the most basic truth of my marriage to Michelle was and is not that we were declared to be husband and wife, though that is true and it is still true. The most basic truth is that we are united together. When I married Michelle, my focus was not on the assorted benefits that that marriage would would bring. The focus was on the fact that I was being united, bound to her and she to me. And yes, this... Union brought with it many benefits, which are wonderful gifts, but I didn't receive these gifts by themselves or for themselves. I didn't receive them simply because I got married. I received them because I got her. It's impossible that someone could be justified and not also begin to grow in holiness. Not all at once, not all at the same pace in every person, not without stumbles and falls in various ways. But if you're justified by faith, then you're also united to Christ by faith, and Christ will complete his work in you. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism put it, doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ, like a branch grafted into a vine, not to produce fruits of gratitude. It's properly understood justification by faith does not promote sin because it's part of the package of receiving and being united to Christ himself. And we who are in Christ have, have died to the law in order to live for God because we're united to Christ by faith. A few reflections then as we close Salvation is not about getting saved. Salvation is about getting Christ. This whole business of union with Christ is important because it's easy to think that, that what's offered in the gospel is primarily benefits received rather than a savior to be treasured. Sometimes when the gospel is preached, the offer sounds something like this Jesus died for you. Uh, And now if you believe that, you'll be forgiven, you'll get eternal life, you'll go to heaven when you die, you'll be released from slavery to sin, and so forth. It's all this, this, here's what's in it for you. And what's the problem with that? Well, all of those things are true, but if that's how I understand the gospel, then I've merely made Christ a means to an end rather than the end itself. Because salvation is... It's not merely about getting saved. Salvation is about getting Christ. It's it's not about coming to possess certain spiritual blessings in and of themselves. It's not about receiving certain parts or aspects of Christ. As if you could receive Christ as a teacher and not as a Savior. Or as a Savior, but not as a Lord. But we don't receive salvation piecemeal like a buffet. No, what we are called to receive, what what we call others to receive in the gospel... It's not parts of salvation, but a complete Savior. As one author put it, the the arm of faith embraces the whole Christ. We don't get to choose the parts of Christ we want and the parts we don't. To do this is basically to say, I want the privileges, but I don't want the person. To return to the marital picture, this is like treating... Salvation is something akin to a green card marriage. Uh, in this case, salvation is presented as a ticket through the customs line in the kingdom of God. Right, come in with Christ. He'll sort of smuggle you in. Uh, and once you're in, you've been granted residency, you can go on with your life, safe and secure. You did your part. You, you prayed a prayer. You bowed a head. You raised a hand. You walked an aisle. You got baptized and, and so on. And, and so you got your heavenly green card. So you don't really need this sham marriage that gave you access in the first place. Maybe you'll come back to Christ for help at various points, but it's, it's nothing like a covenant union of love. And I think there are many people, both non-Christians and Christians, who think this is what Christianity is basically like. So Christian, do you think of your salvation primarily in terms of receiving and resting in spiritual benefits and privileges? Things that that God gives you rather than receiving and resting in Christ Himself? Do you think of being saved primarily as a matter of having the the gift of forgiveness or the gift of life or the gift of holiness or the gift of adoption rather than having the gift of Christ? Think about... John 3.16, the most famous verses in the Bible, It doesn't say, God so loved the world that he gave the world salvation. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The gift of the gospel is Christ. When you talk to others about the gospel, do you talk to them about all the benefits of becoming a Christian, all the wonderful things that were promised, but neglect to to emphasize the most important benefit, the most important blessing, the absolute center of the good news of the gospel is that we get Christ. Do you think or, or, or speak of what's offered in the gospel primarily as a sort of package of spiritual benefits rather than a Savior to be treasured, a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us? But the way that you may share the gospel with others, and I I suspect that we, and I mean we, myself included, lean towards offering people these various parts of salvation, things like forgiveness or eternal life, because we are, to put it frankly, scared that those are the things that are easier to sell. They're the things that might seem more attractive to people. We fear that if we simply offer them Christ as a Savior, that offer will not be particularly compelling Someone makes an offer, we're conditioned to ask, well, what's in it for me? Why would, I, why would I want this? And we may think that if we answer simply Christ, Christ is what's in it for you, that people will not be as easily drawn as if we were to say, well, forgiveness, blank slate, new life. Friends, I wonder if we don't think about offering Christ this way because we ourselves are not are not amazed by the beauty, the glory, the loveliness, the excellence of not just what Christ gives, but who Christ is. It may be that we've been conditioned to think more of the gifts, the gifts of love, more than the beloved. It would be hard to offer someone Christ and expect that they will find Him compelling if we ourselves don't find Him supremely compelling. And if this is so, then, then we have to reacquaint ourselves not just with what our spiritual blessings are, but in whom they are found. It would be well for us if we could say with Charles Wesley, no condemnation, now I dread, not because I've been justified by faith, though that is true. No condemnation now I dread, because Jesus and all in him is mine. We need more than anything else not to try harder to be obedient or to be more consistent in reading the Bible or prayer or to do more for others. Those all might be good things, but what we need to do most is to look again and to be captivated by Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. To those who believe, Peter said, he is precious. Not to those who believe salvation is precious, but to those who believe he is precious. Is he precious to you? And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then you need to know that everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus did, and everything that Jesus offers, all of it will be of no benefit to you so long as you remain outside of Him, disconnected to Him. Like a branch cut off from the life of the vine, you will wither and die. It doesn't matter how hard you try to produce spiritual fruit, how hard you try to obey God's commands, you'll never truly be able to live for God. But if you come to Christ by faith, if you're united to Him by faith, then all He has, all He is, all He offers will be yours. If you trust Him, yes, life and salvation will be yours. But more than that, Christ, the risen, reigning, returning Savior who loved you and gave Himself for you, Christ will be yours. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking more of your gifts and less of you who give. Forgive us for thinking more of the benefits of love more than you who are love. Lord, we pray that you might refresh our Spirits, our souls, our hearts, by showing us anew the beauty of Jesus. That you might help us to see that everything we have comes because our lives are wholly bound to His. and that we might in turn go and offer to the world not just merely salvation, but a living Savior. We would ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand now as we sing.